All right, so we're gonna focus on this camera okay. right here, and then we'll uh, we'll All be good right. to go. Okay. All right. So, um, welcome to Empower You Podcast. My name is Kibway Cooper, and I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about creating your path to power. Uh, for many of us, we can get very easily caught up in the things that we have authority over, and we think that is where we derive power from. But the problem with authority is that it's only based off of someone else's preconceived idea of your value, whether that's at work or in your whatever environment, school, um, family, social dynamic, community, wherever it is, the perceived value that you have is what gives you authority. Your power is what you intrinsically possess, and therefore we have to figure out a way to make space for that. And in order for us to do this, we have to find out how, and we need to talk to people who have done it. And so our guest for this podcast is Dr. Diana Jackson Davis. Dr. Diana is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Parkview Health, and um, I have just been following some of her work. She has a very, very long resume. It would take hours to go through, <laughs> um, but we're really, really happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's an honor to be invited to this, and um, I don't take um, any type of interview or podcast lightly. I just um, believe that I have to live my truth, speak my truth, you know, and, and, and I think that's just the best way to be, to be your authentic self. And, you know, when you speak about power, you know, and the authority that others have on you, it doesn't allow you often to be able to speak your truth because you have to conform to the ideals of others and their expectations. And it can be very, very, very challenging, very difficult, especially in the workplace, um, because um, you're always, you, you no longer own yourself when you work for an organization. Um, they own you and you're 24 seven even if you think you aren't, um, because um, the power belongs to them because they have your paycheck. And, but you have to draw that line and draw a boundary mm. and, and put those boundaries there and say to yourself, is this the right thing? Is this morally the right thing to do, right? And when it infringes upon your own beliefs and your own values, you just have to take a stand and say, not today. <laughs> right. You know, so live your truth. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think of uh, when you think about power? And, and for anyone watching and those of you in the audience, I want you to take a second and write down what you <sighs> think of, what comes to your mind when you think about power. Don't give it any context. Just write down what you think of when you think power. Okay. So, you know, I was you know, going through my mind and, you know, words like control, words like authority, um, words like disparities, words like harm. There were so many negative things, you know, and, and many, many positive things. I tend to look in the positive things, um, but it took me to a quote that I had to write down, and Mary Emelald um, Bethune said that we live in a world that um, respects power over everything. Mm. And but power intelligently uh, directed can lead to freedom. So for me, power is freedom. Mm. You yeah. said in power directed intelligently. I think that's very interesting the way that you put that because a lot of times I feel like power just has zero context and it just just absorbs everything nearby and there's no real intentional concept around it once a person has or an entity has yeah. power. It just becomes all-encompassing and there's no real directed aim. Um, I think there is and I think it's for every individual, we all bring our own type of self, our own power to the table. 
you know. Um, for me personally, um, I, I think for me, education was my power. Learning was my power. Knowledge, just get, getting it and grasping it. And I can tell you that it changed my life. And so, you know, I think it's up to you to decide what you want to do with it and what you see as something being powerful versus you having power. Like I said, power for me was easy. It was, it was in, in education and not all in the sense of in the classroom, you know, but life. You know, you, you've got to wake up. I, I remember, I'm going to go back to 1992, I'm a student at IPFW, and um, I met uh, Dr. Squadrido, Kathy Squadrido, a lady, um, from, she's from San Francisco. And I was told that I had to take this class, you know the electives that you don't want to take, but they make you take them? And I'm like, why do I have to take philosophy? Why, why? And I was kind of a reluctant student going to that, that class that day. But, you know, I sat in the back where I normally sat in classes because, you know, I never was a front person. I was a C student, by the way, um, and that's a different story, but, <laughs> I'll have, I'll, I'll, but it'll all make sense to you. Absolutely. But she said something. She said um, so many, she quoted a philosopher, uh, Jean-Paul Satir, and she said, so many people go through life seeing the world for how it isn't, right? And I'm, you know, and I had to, you know, like, sit back and say, what does she mean? People go through the world, seeing the, go through life, seeing the world, how it isn't. And I realized in that moment, I did not want to be one of those people. I did not want to be in the back. I didn't want to be silent. I wanted to see the world for how it really is. And as, as, mm. as a person who was, who was born in England and I lived in Nigeria and most people would say, oh, she's world-traveled and she's seen the world, but you know, you, you're, you're, you are your social location. Because what was happening in England for me growing up as an English kid was not happening in America for a black child, you know, a black kid. You know, what was happening in Nigeria for a black child was definitely not happening in England or in America for a black child. And so, but it took me back to my past. It took me back, I would say, when I was nine years old and I remember we weren't allowed, my dad didn't allow us to watch TV very often. And, and so we would sneak to the neighbor's house and watch television. I remember watching a, a documentary on BBC and it was about um, apartheid, you know. And, and there was this, this man, Sonia Kusun, who is a Nigerian singer, and he was singing Fire in Soweto. You know, mm -hmm. fire in Soweto, yeah. burning all yeah. my people, yeah. killing all my people. And I, you know, and I, you know, as a nine-year-old, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but I knew inherently that there was something wrong with the world and I did nothing. But I knew that, wow, what's going on there? What's, this, what's apartheid? And then the following week, I went back, you know, because my dad didn't know I was going to the neighbor's house to watch this stuff. <laughs> and it, this time it was about America. This really was my, first time hearing about America, you know, and it was on segregation, and it was about whites only, no blacks allowed. And I'm like, but they look like me, and it's not happening to me, but people that look like me, you know, are being ridiculed, are being oppressed, you know, and these words made absolutely no sense to me, to my nine-year-old sense, self. And I didn't know, and I suppressed that, mm. right? And so when we moved to Nigeria, and I forgot about that story, and I moved to Nigeria, and we fast forward, and then I find myself in America, because I go back to England, and I end up in America. And I arrived in Fort Wayne. Um, they had just um, approved Martin Luther King's Day. It was now a national holiday, and I remember the Klan had marched downtown, and I was visiting Fort Wayne, and I'm like, what is going on? And I got this call from my brother, Magnus, and he goes, Diana, you've got to come home. You can't live in this country, you know, because it's, it's, it's not right. They don't, treat, they don't treat black people, you know, right here. You're not safe. And, but I still didn't get it because I was in my young state. I was in my naive state. 
I had my rosy colored lenses or glasses on and I didn't really understand it. And so for five years, I, I, I sort of lived in ignorance. I just didn't understand it. And then I took a class. No, it, it didn't even happen that way. I went to school. I went to school because I was part of the working poor. So when you talk about power, if you were poor, you have no power. You were mm. powerless, right? And I was making 5.55 an hour, and I won't talk about the place, but I do remember at the time, because it was a, a big uh, system, that there were very few people of color, people that looked at, like me in the workplace, and the people that were, that I saw that looked like me, they were in the kitchen, and they were in nutritional services. There was only two places, and I was doing something else, right? And I couldn't understand that I never saw people of color there. And I remember even questioning and saying, why aren't there? Because in Nigeria, there were presidents, vice presidents, doctors, scientists, the whole world, you know, I saw everything. And even in England, I saw that. But I didn't see that here. But I still didn't know. I still didn't get it. I was still blind. But I still felt inside something was wrong. And it wasn't until, it was probably four and a half years later, and, and I started off at 5.55, so you know I was poor. That was minimum <laughs> wage, right? And so <laughs> I, um, four years later, I'm now making 6.25. So give or take, it took me almost five years to get a 20 cents, a 55 cents was it? Not even that, raise, a 70 cent raise. Five years, and I knew I was going downhill, you know. And my brother came to see me, and, he, and, and I was ashamed to tell him that, oh, I need to pay my wet light bill, I needed to pay my electric bill, mm -hmm. I had all this stuff, and I'm living on 5.55 an hour, 6.25 at this point. And, and he knew, and I remember him saying to me, Diana, if you don't change your life, you are going to be in the same place a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. So when I speak about power and education, it, it is a wonderful thing because it has the ability to transform you. And so my light bulb came on in that moment and I decided that I was going to own my destiny. I'm going to be the author of my book. The chapters in my book, I'm gonna write my story, right? Nobody else is gonna do it. That place I was working at, I didn't have people like me working. They no longer had that power. And so I got on the bus and I found out where um, IPFW was. That was the university. And a friend of mine was going. I couldn't figure out how she was going because we worked together. And she was poor and I was poor. So I'm like, well, how do you pay? <laughs> you know? And they told right. me about this thing called financial aid. Of yep. course, I had two kids at this point. And so um, I took a chance on myself. And it was very hard. It was very hard because I feared education. Mm. Why did you fear education? Oh my goodness, you, you was like growing up with Nigerian parents. When you come out as a Nigerian parent, I don't care what country you're in, my son or daughter is going to be a lawyer. My baby is going to be a doctor when they grow up. You know, So they've right. already defined what I'm gonna be. And so when I was in Nigeria during my uh, teenage years, going to school, I remember I might have been 13 and somebody said to me, Oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'm like, what am I going to be when I grow up? I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'm not there yet. You know, I think about it then. And I, 14, I said that, and I was shunned. People didn't want to hang out with someone who didn't know what they were going to do when mm. they grew up. And for a whole year, I didn't have friends. And it seemed very hard and very odd, but I didn't. And I could not compete with them. I mean... You know, you, you talk about A's, you know, our system here is A, B, C, right? D, F, you're, you're out, right? In Nigeria, it's A, B, C, there's no D and F. There's A, B, C, there's excellence, and then there's distinction, which is the highest level. I was a C student in England, right? And I got to Nigeria, and these kids were reading. They were reading everything that wasn't nailed to the ground, and so, I was intimidated by the fact that these kids were so far ahead, knew what they were going to do, and I didn't even have a clue of what I was going to be. And so, you know, when I graduated from high school in Nigeria, I just knew I, I got like two C's. I managed to get two A's in something and can't remember what it was. It might have been in liberal arts because I was good in that. I, I could talk. <laughs>
but um, nobody wanted me. A university there did not want me. I wasn't good enough, you mm. know. And I felt ashamed. I felt like I let my parents down in many right. ways because the pressure, you know, of wanting to please them. My oldest brother had graduated from, um, he was 15. By the time he was 16 years old, he had graduated from high school, went to university. By the time he was 19, he already had a bachelor's degree. By the time he was 21, he was working for Central Bank, mm. covering most of West Africa, uh, West Africa. And I'm here with nothing, and I couldn't compete, you know. And I, I knew my best bet was to go back to England and to go find myself because I could get into a school there. But what ended up happening was when I got, when I got to England, I, decided, I was a teenager, 19 years old. Like every other teenager, I'm going to bum through Europe. I'm going like, to not go to school. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to live, you know. And so I do all of that. And um, a cousin called me and said, why don't you come and stay with me, come visit. I don't really want to come to America because I remember my story, mm -hmm. you know. Right. Uh, I don't know if I want to go there, but she convinced me, so I came and went back home. I came again, and you know, and that's how I ended up up here. I think it was probably was my third trip, and I met my my um, late ex-husband who lived in Texas, and you know, before you know, I'm in Fort Wayne, and you know, my story of this. Buried began. It began because it was. Um, I was thrown into a culture that I didn't know. Right. I didn't. I didn't understand white America. I didn't understand black America. You know. So I was sheltered in my house, and the only time I got to meet people was when he went to church, and I went to the Catholic church. I was raised Catholic too, so <laughs> that's another story. So <laughs> I had never been to a Baptist church before. You know, and I didn't understand it. You know. I didn't know, and so for me coming here, um, I, can, I can tell you, I remember I was teaching at IPFW and a young student said to me, you can't teach me black history, because, and I said, why not? And she said, because you're not one of us. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, wow, you know, after all this time, I'm still not part of, of this, this this culture, I'm still not part mm. of the people that I look like. And it was kind of painful, but I looked at her and I said, you know what? Pain doesn't know color, right? And, you know, and so and it, you, you've got to bring everything back when you talk power. You yeah. have to own, in certain times and certain situations that will happen, that you have to own who you are and then begin to face the things that you lack about yourself. You know, and um, I decided at that point, I'm going to learn everything I can about black history. And so I did. There was a, a, a professor at uh, IPFW, Christine uh, Patterson, that used to teach black women in America. And I took her class. And I'm like, whoa, you know. And, and then there was another person who was teaching us African studies, and so I took her first class in black history, and I, and I started learning. But philosophy became my core because of Dr. Squadrito. But before that, I would say it was uh, Dr. Judy Diorio, who um, second semester IPFW, I was going to drop out because I've decided that this is not for me. It's too hard. Right. I got kids. I'll just be poor and live, you know. <laughs> And uh, she, that works. It, it, yeah, it works. And she said, you know, I, I told her after class, I said, I need to talk to you after class. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, well, you know, I'm separated too from my husband at the time. And I, I'm like, you know, I don't think I can do this. I've decided I'm just gonna like, just give up and I'll come back next year and try again. And she said, not today. She said, follow me, come to my office. I need to talk to you. And so I uh, you know, went to her office, she sat me down, and this lady, uh, she said, tell me what's going on. And it was like, I had been carrying this load, you know, of five years of living as a nobody in Fort Wayne, five years of being invisible, because when you are part of the working poor, uh, people walk around you, not necessarily on you, but they do walk around you, beside you, but sometimes on you too. And, they walk right through you, and you become invisible. So I coined this term, the invisible syndrome, where I just felt I was just existing, you know, just mm. 
existing but not really living. And she said, you're taking psychology, right? <laughs> yes, you're going to take an incomplete in that because you're going to complete it in the next semester. But you're going to finish Sociology 111 and you're going to succeed and I'm not going to give up on you. And that was the first time anybody really had listened to me that someone had showed interest in my, in my well-being. Right. And I said, okay. And you know, so I went over to see Dr. Mohammed. I still remember, because he said, on, if you get an A, you could call him Mo. Um, but um, <laughs> I ended up getting an A eventually. But um, you know, I, I completed that class, and it was, and I never looked back. I started mm -hmm. up, all I wanted to do was make $8 an hour. And then I realized that I wanted to make $10 an hour. And then I became a, a poor social worker. And, so, and, and I love that profession because it exposed me to the true disparities that exist in Port Wayne. Hmm. And then I was making $15 an hour. And I'm like, OK. You know? And so you know, with every, every increment, you know, um, there was a desire that I could do better. And before I knew it, within six years, I had my master's. And I took a, a year off and went straight to my PhD. You know, and started working on that. That took me about seven years to complete, and and so it wasn't. It was a very uh, hard, hard, not easy journey because I don't want you to think that it was easy going through school and that's all it took. But it was life and life lessons and the people that that touched me along the way. Because yeah. you know, when I think of power, I think of every single person. My dad said I was born for a purpose. My mom said I was born for a purpose. I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't get it. But we are all born for this, this purpose. We have this purposeful driven life, right? And that means that we're given talent that we often don't use. Mm. We, don't even, we don't even tap into ourselves, into our very core. And it really means like, you know, I remember my, in, 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 in human services, uh, a professor said, um, give yourself positive affirmations, you know, like put those little sticky notes on your mirror. Oh, you're so beautiful. I'm so kind. I'm so this, you know, and I was like sticking all these little, little posty uh, notes on my, <laughs> my, my bathroom mirror, you know, to, you know, but it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to, to live it, it and yeah. to believe it, yeah. you know. And, and I think that truly that um, through the hard times of my life um, and a lot of the tribulations and a lot of the negative experiences that I decided that I was going to turn everything around and I was going to see a lesson in everything because there is a le no matter what you do, no matter how bad it is, how good it is, there's a lesson in everything. I was going to turn that into something meaningful for right. me right. and in turn be able to do that for someone else. So what was, the, what was the first thing, though, after you had that conversation with your brother and he tells you, you know, you're setting the trajectory for your life, you have to change something. What was the first, what was the first thing that, that you did, you know, to, to figure out what that next step was to change it? Because sometimes, you know, we just get into rhythms, right? And year and year and year after year pass, and we can't seem to break that rhythm. So what was the first thing you did to help you break that rhythm of doing I, that? I think it was like looking at myself, taking a, being honest and truthful to myself and looking in that mirror and then looking at those sticky notes. I didn't take them down, <laughs> okay. but I had to look in the mirror and, and you know, sometimes we don't like what we see. It's so easy just to point and we forget that there's fingers pointing back at yourselves and cry and and say i and be honest enough to say i need help mm. that i needed help i needed i needed help and um and i have to tell you that i was ashamed that's interesting yeah i was ashamed of who i was that i had settled you know i allowed myself to get into the situation i was in i was struggling and i and i didn't want to struggle anymore you know yeah. and it just meant you know, really facing the things that I didn't like about myself, you know. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like it. I didn't like how 
I was living. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't buy my kids things. Mm. You know, I couldn't support my family. Yeah. And I decided that that was it. I wasn't going to live that way, you know. And it yeah. certainly wasn't the way my parents raised me. But, you know, when you're out on your own, mm -hmm. your, their reality is theirs. Their experience is theirs. Yeah. You know, you you're going to make yours. your own. Yeah. yeah, you hide the negatives that are happening to yeah. you so that you don't draw their, their critique or their judgment yeah. because you're underperforming yeah. your knowledge. Yeah. You know. And they weren't here to see it, you know. And so I could hide it from them, you know. And, and because of that, I, I was somewhat protected. But when my brother arrived and he saw that, I realized that I had disappointed him. And in disappointing, mm. you know, when you love someone so much, and I don't know how many people have a relationship like I do, I, I love, I can't tell you how much I love my family. I, I mean, I, I'm like crazy in love with my brothers. So I call them every day. They don't call me, I call them, you know, three, four times a day. Thank God for FaceTime and WhatsApp and all this other stuff now, you know. But my big brother, uh, Manny, um, was my world. I always looked up to him because he was the kid who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Everything seemed to work well for him. And I was this kid who nothing seemed to work out right for me, you know. Um, and a lot of things didn't work out right because I did it, you know. And, and, and finally I was ashamed. And I just decided not anymore. And, and I wanted him, and I wanted my dad and my mom. I just wanted them to be proud of me, right. you know, all of a sudden. And I wanted my kids, when they did ask for things, to, um, for me to be able to say, no, you can't have it, not because I can't buy it because you don't need it. Right. And I have a choice in saying no. Right. Right? And so it was that. How do you, so, so as a teacher, as a, as a, and you've taught for so many years, how do you get your students to that place? How do you help them understand they are ultimately responsible for whatever it is that's going on in their life? You know, it, Because it, I think that's, yeah. that's like, you said, you know, that reflection is what really helped you move forward. But I feel like there are so many exterior influences at this yeah, point, oh. you know, that it's almost difficult to get a real picture of who you are. Oh, I think that, you know, um, I didn't teach in medical school. I teach at the college. I, I, I've taught at IPFW. I've taught at um, Ivy Tech now for about 23 years. And... Um, Every student that comes through, I, I hope I make that connection, you know, because you have to take time, you know, um, to meet your students, to learn their names, to know their names. And then through the years, you forget, but you hope and you pray that you're making that impact, yeah. you know, as soon as they walk through, you know, because I understand that I was one of them, you know. And, and so it's really about having a relationship, and a lot of people don't think about that, you know, relationship is not just, hi, how are you doing? And you go on. You know, you have to make time for every person that comes into your life. And sometimes at times can be so, so busy and so hectic, you know, especially in social work, you know, you're a case manager, you're constantly seeing clients or your patients and so forth. And it can get to be overwhelming. You're a teacher, you're seeing your students. You know, and I saw that, you know, when I even worked in higher ed as in a national officer, working with students all the time, there's always a line. But every person, every single person that comes through the door has a story. Yeah. Every single person is a story, you know. I, I, and for me, it's, it's a hard one for me, and I'll tell you why. I, I remember I had one student who came to my class and the following year, he um, would come to my office, he would find me at the college. And I remember the one Thursday afternoon, we had a late meeting in the office. And uh, like windows like this, and he walked by and I saw him and the way I was sitting, he waved at me and I you know, did the, I'll call you, you know? Yeah. I never knew, I could have left that meeting, but I was in a meeting. I could have walked out, but I didn't. And I remember him leaving, and I didn't know that that would be the last time I would see him. I read his obituary um, the following Sunday. It was a week later. His obituary was in the newspaper. 
and his picture wasn't, but his name was, and I recognized his name from my, my roster, you know, and I'm like, no, that cannot be. So I just kindly, I quietly, you know, go to this funeral home, and I see him standing from a distance. I'm like, oh, it wasn't him, you know, and I'm walking closely and getting closer to this coffin, and I realized that it is him, and it was his brother I was seeing that almost looked like a twin. Wow. And he said to me, he said, how, how did you know him? And I, I said, well, I was his uh, philosophy professor. And his brother looked at me and said, oh, he spoke of you all the time. In fact, we have this whole area that's dedicated to philosophy. And I just bawled, I was crying my eyes out because I'm like, oh my goodness, you know. Um, that uh, he had committed suicide and it, you know it broke my heart because you know sometimes we only have a second it only takes a second you know I don't know what stopped me that day from going out you know but that's following Sunday yeah. you know he took his life and you know we have the power sometimes um, to make a difference in that moment you know Going back to Dr. Judy Diorio, that day when I left IPFW and I'm driving down Main Street, May 21st, I never forget because it's my dad's birthday, I felt the sunshine. Now, it might not mean much to anyone else, but I felt the sunshine for the first time like in so many years. I go through the seasons, yeah. but it meant something because all of a sudden it wasn't cloudy anymore. She yeah. had moved removed all that cloud by just listening to me for 20 minutes. And I try to do that yeah. with every person I meet. Wow. I try to, you know, because we give, we have the ability to give power, right? And to transform someone. And, you know, so on the same note, a positive story, you know, his, uh, his experience wasn't the same, but for somebody else who, uh, 15 years later, 20 years later, reached out to me and said, oh, you know, you were my professor 20 years ago. You probably don't remember me, and I didn't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I remember faces. And he said, well, I was this kid that was in your class, da-da-da-da-da. I should be dead or in prison. But I just wanted to let you know that I am going to receive tenure. I am now, I'm now teaching philosophy, wow. you know. And yeah. I'm like, what? He said, your class changed my life. And so it's not just me, you know. So, you know, it, sometimes you wait. The, the, the rewards that you're looking for may not be right there in that moment. That, right. you know, that reward is years out, light years away, you know. Yeah. But eventually, you know, you know you're impactful. And so for everyone, you know, if you have a gift, which it comes down to a basic thing for me, and it doesn't cost a thing. It's just lead with kindness and compassion. That's my own motto. Lead with kindness and compassion. What, what would you say, you know, I feel like you've, in reading, you know, about you, there's just so many different routes that you took <laughs> as far as, you know, your work with immigration, as far as teaching, your work with philosophy. What would you, what do you feel like informed those shifts? What do you feel like your purpose is? And for anybody who is doing the homework, I want you to, <laughs> to, to go ahead and, and write that in as well, what you feel like your purpose is. And this is just for you. Again, this is not about where you work or who you're associated with. This is your own individual voice and what you feel like your purpose is. So what, what, would, what would you say informed all those moves? Because you can really get wrapped up in, 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 in impacting young people the way that you were. Yeah. And so then to start working with immigration and then to start teaching and then now to be the director of diversity and inclusion, you know, you, you've covered so much ground. What, what informs those different moves? I think it was my faith that kept me grounded. Um, I was at a young age, my dad, uh, was a very principled man. He would, he said, you know, love God. It was always God first and family and then honor, integrity, um, you know. Um, and so for me, 
I had to always go back to that basic core foundation, mm -hmm. right, of, of something that was laid by my dad and my mom, you know, and so um, I would definitely say I go back to the basics, you know, and for every experience. So, you know, being part of the working poor certainly got me to a place where I needed help and when I couldn't receive help because I made too much. I, so that year I made $12,000 for a family of four. $12,000 in those years was too much. I made $1,000 too much. So I didn't qualify for any assistance. And I'm like, I stood out here for eight hours for you to tell me no. And I, just, I was so mad. And I had a baby, you know, I didn't have cell phones in those days. <laughs> they had pages, though. <laughs> the folks who are my age know what I'm talking about. You know, beep, wow. beep, beep. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so um, that was something that probably made me decide that I was going to um, do something in, in social work. And that did take me into social work. But then my experience, you know, in college too with my professor, I knew that she kicked me out of her class and said, go teach a class. So of course, I had to go teach. And that exposed me to um, the um, higher ed. And I saw opportunities there, you know, to work in higher ed. But when I was a social worker, because of my, my immigrant experience, uh, mo most of my clients that I would get were immigrants. And so just by default, I was working with people who were like me. We were lost because there was a lost, you know, those, there was no services in those days for immigrants in Fort Wayne, you know. And I, I'm proud to say I was part of some grassroots initiatives that started here in Fort Wayne. And I, I worked with some phenomenal people. But by 1997, um, I met a, a pastor named Pastor John Loom who worked with African immigrants. And I'm like, African immigrants are here in Fort Wayne. And you know, my family's Nigerian. And, you know, I claim Nigeria. I claim both England, Nigeria, you know. So um, you can do that. I can I mean, claim everywhere. You, you can do that. But, uh, and he introduced me, he invited me to this African fest. And I later found out that there were more than 5,000 African immigrants that lived in Fort Wayne. I was like, what? You know, so my whole world opened up. And so I knew there was a lot of work that needed to be done, you know, around, around that. And so, and so when I, I took the position at, at, at Ivy Tech, it was uh, the, for the um, uh, Director of Diversity Affairs. And I didn't even know what that was, you know. We didn't talk diversity in England. And... Um, so I, anyway, I took that job, but what they didn't tell me was that there was a whole international piece to it, and in it where, where I would be reporting to, um, it was INS in those days, and, and that would be my main focus, and everything else was built around that. Mm and so my experience working with immigrants, you know, then getting this role at Ivy Tech, and, and staying with Ivy Tech for almost 16 years, and, and working with immigrants, then exposed me to a lot. I started doing immigration, and. Um, working with bringing in international students, bringing in scholars, making sure that the federal, uh, the federal mandates were in place and regulations, people were maintaining their status, doing a change of status, keeping people here legal if they weren't, and trying to find pathways to create or pipelines to create opportunities where you know, uh, a person could become a legal yeah. uh, student. Yeah. And so that's what took me there. And, you know, but along the way, you found out that I found that there were many needs around uh, ESL, English as a second language. You know, there were cultural um, opportunities for people to learn because so many people lack the cultural um, awareness and the cultural training and education. And so, yeah. you know, so over the, the, the years, um, I just kind of sort of fell into the role. So right. eventually I decided I was going to be an ambassador of some kind. And I, in many ways, being an international officer, I became an ambassador for the immigrant community, both locally and, uh, and internationally. And then, um, you know, started working with the Department of State, so working with the embassies. And so my, 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 my path 
Um, it, everything was by chance, you know, but eh, I won't say by chance. I think that God like put me on a yeah. path. You know, we're always on this journey, you know. Yeah. Every, everything I've done in my life has prepared me for the journey I'm on today. And I, and I can attribute all of that to God being that, 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 that guide and yeah. that force that drives me. You have to have some type of supreme force that guides you, you know. Right. And so when we, you know, if you're talking on this thing about power, you know, you can look at the organizations, they're operating under a different type of power, right. a different type of construct, you know. Um, as an individual, you have to look into yourself and operate on what you believe to be your truth, what you believe to be your calling, you know. And, and for me, you know, um, it was facing the thing that I feared most about myself, and that was success, mm, you know. That's a whole nother, a whole nother topic, yeah. is, is fearing, yeah. you know, your own ability to do something. Yeah, your and, own ability and, to take up space in a certain aspect or in a certain environment or career field, you know, and the responsibility that yeah. it takes to do that. What it, would, yeah. before we go to break, yeah. real quick, okay. but, um, what has worked for you with, with inspiring students, with helping them get oh. to the point where, and, and you just in people in general, you know, helping them break through that barrier of, of seeing themselves properly, seeing themselves in a way that they can actually say, all right, this is what I'm having a problem with, you know. You said relationship, but is there, is there, is there more than that? How can like viewers start now, you know, uh, um, start down that path? Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to end uh, the break. Yeah. So, uh, so a couple years ago, I went to a conference and somebody said something about this lady that was speaking, and I I really struggle sometimes sitting through long conferences, and I said, okay, I'll stay for 15 minutes, and I only needed 10 minutes. And she said something around the idea of, don't hustle your value, know your worth, and I'm like, oh, that's all I need. You know, I was done. <laughs> I think that for me, I took that and I said, don't hustle your value, know your worth. I try to teach that. I teach value, value who you are and believe who you are. Don't be afraid to try anything. Don't be afraid to apply for anything because I think there's sometimes you think, oh, I'm not gonna, I don't, I'm not qualified to do this job. I'm, I don't have the skill set. Everybody that gets a job has to learn something, right? Every single person, I don't care what position you own, what position you are, I should say. I don't care if you're the pope. I don't care if you're the president. I don't care if you're the king. Everybody has doubts, right? You have to believe in yourself and trust yourself. And that goes back to having value, right? Trust that you are of value, right? And for me, that's it. So I don't hustle my value because I know my worth. And I think that through education, through learning, through life experiences, all those things combined, right? And I try to tell everyone, people I come in contact with, whether it's my friends, whether it's my, uh, the students I work with, because my students are not usually kids, they're young adults still trying to find their way, sometimes they're older adults trying to find their way, that you've got to trust, you've got to know your worth. And everybody has worth. Everybody is worthy. You know, mm. everybody has worth. You know, That's and I awesome. think that for me, that, that is it. Simple. Don't hustle your value, know, know your, your worth. worth. That's that's a game changer yeah. in different negotiations I've been through for jobs and things like that. That has just been, you know, that motto of just knowing what you bring to the table, regardless of what they're looking for, you know what you bring to the table. And if that's not for you, it's just not for yeah. you. Yeah, because every road, every road you go to, you know, I mean, yeah. I've gone through this, you know, and they've said no, and it's okay. You know, it's a road traveled, but it's not your destination. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. So, All right. Well, right. listen, um, thank you for that. Don't, I mean, we're going to take a quick break. 
Uh, you guys can get up, stretch a little bit. There's more food, there's drink. Um, and we'll come back, we're gonna do a thought exercise, and then we're gonna do a little homework. You guys cool with that? Okay, all right. So for you who are watching, who are viewing, uh, thank you. Uh, we're gonna take a break and we'll be back, all right? Okay. All right. We'll take Great. 10. <laughs> all right. Thank you, thank you. Hey, uh, Keith, if you wanna. I hope that was okay. Okay, y'all, uh, we, are, we are back. Please don't hurry if you are still eating or need to get up and grab something and use the restroom, whatever you gotta do, you're all good. Um, we are done with the first part of our interview, but in every interview, we have thought exercises. And I love the thought exercises because as a person who, um, you know, can just feel overwhelmed from time to time, it's really great to have tools on how to bring yourself back in, how to refocus yourself, how to get yourself back on track. And so, we're gonna have a thought exercise <laughs> from Dr. Diana, and I'm very excited about it. So, um, Dr. Diana, take it away. Okay, so I was gonna say, um, what I do is um, I go to my a special place of ballroom where I dance. <laughs> And this is actually a pretty good place to do it, but my partner's not here, so we can't do that. <laughs> no, um, no I, um, I, I really like that. I, I write poetry, um, so I love that, and I, so I encourage you to do that. But recently I, I was talking to a colleague and a good friend of mine, and we were talking about meditation, which many of us um, maybe don't do. And, and it's kind of hard to do, especially, when there's a lot of noise going on, you know, but I think it's really important that you find five minutes in the day to do it. And the best time is usually in the morning for me. Um, five minutes, that's all you need. And all you have to do, right, is go to Google and find the meditation called letting go of your past. Because so many of us, we do live in, uh, we live in the past, you know, and sometimes it's not a good place and there's so much, you know, stress and mental health issues and um, sadness sometimes and it really keeps us down. And, it, and, and when we start our day that way, you know, the whole day is just ruined. Sometimes, sometimes you don't even know that you're part of it when, you're, when you are doing that. So for me, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is I make my bed. Now, it might seem like a easy thing to do, but if you're in a hurry and your bed's not made in the morning, the most simple thing that you can do to get yourself on the right path without being unorganized, right, is to make your bed. Because one, you're starting your, your day right and saying, okay, I'm disciplined, I've made my bed, it's neat, right? And um, so I pray, I make my bed, and then I do my five-minute meditation, of letting go of everything. And this is a little bit different than prayer, you know, because we're usually pouring out our hearts to God and, you know, we're asking for grace and mercy and all those things, and that's fine. But with meditation, you're just kind of freeing yourself of everything. And if you have any uh, soft music without words or sounds, you know, like birds chirping or just listening to this, the waves, you know, just splashing around, that calmness, find that and just take those deep breaths in, inhale and exhale and do that about five times and then just close your eyes and think of nothing. Sometimes I use a candle too because at times, you know, it's just looking into that flame, you, the, the flame where you don't think about anything, you just put all your energy yeah. on the flame, you know, and clear your mind. And I know because there's so much noise, so much noise. It, it actually means if you are using your phone, because that's what we're gonna do, if you're using your phone to find the five minute, you know, silence the phone, so all you hear are the words that are being spoken, the calmness, that peacefulness, and I'm telling you afterwards, 
Oh, you'll feel so much better. Close your eyes too when you do it. Make sure you do that because you just start your, your day off so much better. Your bed's made. You've done one thing, right? <laughs> right? And then, you know, you just begin your day. And I try to do that every single day. Every single day. That's right? really great. That's awesome. I think, you know, what you said about um, having done one thing right. For myself, you know, I'm always very goal-oriented and even to like a fault, but it's just having that one win for the day already off top. You at least know that's done, you know, yeah. that, that just encourages you. I, the meditation is, is, I'm working on that. It's hard, you know, and you don't have to, you know, you, uh, you could, you know, sit down and I can't because I can't get up. <laughs> so I sit on the chair. <laughs> um, but I think you, you do have to find time for yourself. And yeah. there's nothing like coming home and your bed's made, right? Yes. Because it's just clean and it's ready for, it's inviting, yeah. you know. And because you get home and you see your bed and everything's a mess and you're like, oh. You know, yeah. it just dampens your mood. Yeah. And so there's just some very small, simple things that we can do in our lives to make it so much easier. Start yeah. your day out right and end your day out right. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for all that. Right. I hope you guys are listening. I hope you all <laughs> enjoyed uh, um, this interview with Dr. Diana. Uh, can we give her a round of applause? Can we do that? You've shared so, 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 yeah. so, so much. And I really, really appreciate well, you taking you. the time to do that. All right? Well, thanks. So for thanks all of you me. listening, um, oh, before I get done, how can people interact with you? How can they learn more about you? Oh. Where can they find you online? Um, tell us. I'm on Facebook. Just go yeah. Facebook and find me. Um, and then you can email me, uh, diana.jackson at parkview.com or djackson at ivytech. Um, .edu, very easy to get um, in touch with me. So I'm an open book. <laughs> That's awesome. My door is always open. That's right. That's right. So make sure you go to Dr. Diana's page, send her a friend's request, um, send her a comment or a message and let her know that you appreciated her interview. Tell her that you love everything that she said. Aww. Do it. It takes like two seconds. Sweet. Do it. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all for being here as well. Uh, we're going to end the interview. So for all of those who are not here in person, we got a couple more things we're going to do. But we will see you guys a little bit later, okay? So, peace. Thank you. <laughs> all right. 